I have the wonderful task this morning of talking about sin. Um, yeah, they decided to give it to the guy who's going to smile his way through it, you know. Um, <laughs> I guess. Let's start our, our time together, though, before we deep delve into this very important and, and crucial topic. Um, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have... So much to be thankful for. So grateful are we for the salvation that you have brought us to through your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price on our behalf for our sin, who has ransomed our souls, who has purchased us with his own blood, who has redeemed us through his son. Lord, we are so blessed. Because even as today, as we look at the depth of what our sins are and coming to grips with that, may we not come to this lightly. Um, Father, may I not make a mockery myself in my words of something that is devastatingly important to you. May you be lifted high, may you be honored, and may your holiness fill our hearts and our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, like I said, I have the, the daunting task to deal with coming to grips with sin. Um, this is so overwhelming to me in some regards because as I, as I was going through this chapter in, in our book, um, I was just reflecting on how this is so true of me. Um, and it is true of every single one of us in this room. There's not one of us who has escaped this um, this issue of sin. There is no one on this planet who has ever escaped the issue of sin. There is one who conquered it, um, but at the same time, he had to deal with it very, very clearly. Um, where does this all stem from? Where does this begin? From the beginning. Um, so our text today that we're really going to dive into is Genesis 3, as you can imagine. Um, so you can probably turn there in your Bibles because we will cover it. Genesis 3 is one of the most vitally important chapters in all of the Bible. Um, it is the foundation of the rest of Scripture. If Genesis 3 does not happen, the rest of Scripture is not necessary. Genesis 3 is imperative. Genesis 3 explains the condition of the universe and the entire state of humanity. So Genesis 3 is important. Um, God reveals his truth of who he is and who we are in Genesis 3. It is such a clear foundation. When God completed his perfect creation in chapters 1 and 2, there is no disorder. There is no chaos. There's no conflict. There's no struggle, pain, discord, deterioration. There's not even death entering into the world yet. Yet our lives today are filled with every single one of those things. And we see the effects of it everywhere. Genesis 3 explains how we got from that paradise of Eden, from creation to God's perfect created order, to where we are today. Um, the world tries to explain where we are today through evolution, <laughs> through all different kinds of means. But evolution, really, when you think about it, offers no explanation for, um, for sin, for evil entering the world, 
for why people do the things they do, the evil that they do. Why is human existence fraught with so much moral and spiritual decay and problems? Um, Evolution will never be able to answer that question. Um, We are moral and spiritual creatures, and we all know this. And we understand the concepts of good and evil. Well, what makes good and what makes evil? We see that because of Genesis 3. We will understand that. We all understand the irresistible pull of sin in our own lives. We have all felt it. And if you haven't, you're deceiving yourselves, which is sin. <laughs> Who designed us to distinguish between good and evil? Where did the human conscience come from? And why is human nature universally drawn to evil. Let's just call sin what it is. It is evil. Even the little white lies, they're evil. And the world and the evolutionists and secular humanists and all those people, they are clueless as to the response to that question. Um, who can deny that evil is pervasive in this world? Henry and I were just, where's Henry? He's right over there. Henry and I were talking like 10 minutes ago about the evil corruption within politics these days. Not just in America, but outside America. You see the, the president or the prime minister of Brazil just got ousted this week for corruption. You see the prime minister of Canada. And I know Canada's perfect in so many ways, but... Um, <laughs> But our Prime Minister did some really foolish things in in the House of Parliament this week. We see within the American borders and, and, and within the White House, corruption all over the place and evil just permeating. Who can deny that evil is pervasive in this world? Um, I was, I, last night, I decided to just look on Drudge Report and kind of just get this idea, what am I talking about, and where is this kind of panning out? Um, We see the transgender agenda being uh, pulled up, but an interesting news article coming out of the UK uh, of a man um, who decided to Oh no! This this one, there was two. One in the one in the UK. Men now in the UK are uh, identifying themselves as dogs. Forget trying to identify as a woman. Now I want to be identified as an animal. Um, there was another man down somewhere in South America who decided he wanted to commit suicide and and stripped himself naked and jumped into the lion's pit in the zoo in front of a bunch of families. This is the evil that permeates our world. And the world cannot explain it. G.K. Chesterton um, referred to the doctrine of original sin as the only part of Christianity that can really be proved. Because it is evident everywhere. It is pervasive. So how did we get to this state? How did we get to this, this willful disobedience? Genesis 3 is the one that answers this. So let's turn to Genesis 3, where we see the answer to this question. Um, uh, we're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 7. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You just did. All right, now it's back. All right. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. According to Romans 5, verse 12, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Adam sinned, he brought what? Death and judgment, not only upon himself, but upon who? The whole world. The whole human race, every one of us, inherits sin and guilt from this one act that happened in seven verses. Romans 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That inability to love or obey or please God is the very essence of human depravity and the very reason we are in the state that we are right now. The only solution to that predicament is God's recreative work. How do we know this? Because Jesus said so. Jesus said in that classic chapter in John chapter 3, we all know John 3.16, but before Jesus gets to John 3.16, he tells Nicodemus what? You need to be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's what salvation from this sin is all about. Because God miraculously changes that nature which we inherited from Adam. He, he changes that nature for the, of those whom he redeems so that they are drawn to the very same righteousness that he formerly hated. This is the central promise of the new covenant. This is why it says in Ezekiel 36, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, because this is the gospel. Ezekiel chapter 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What a great passage. In other words, we do nothing in and of ourselves to bring us salvation. Um, We do nothing to free us from the bondage of sin. It is all what? The work of Christ. Who does what? His spirit removes that heart of stone and gives us what? A heart of flesh. All creation was tainted and cursed because of Adam's sin. 
Romans 8, 20 through 22 says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation is is groaning over this sin. So what does all of creation need? It needs redemption. The reminder of Genesis is fill, or the remainder of Genesis is filled with the evidence of humanity's downward spiral into moral degradation and it doesn't take long. I mean, this escalates quickly. Because what happens, Genesis 3 is this turning point. It starts with everything being very good, God declares it, in Genesis 1.31. But after Genesis 3, all human history has been colored by what is considered very bad. Genesis 4 records what? The first murder. I mean, we go from eating a fruit to murder. This escalates so quickly. Verse 19 first is, speaks of the first uh, case of polygamy all of a sudden. Verse 23 tells of another act of murder. And from there, the human race declines so grievously by Genesis 6. What does God have to do? He's got to destroy the whole earth and bring the flood. I mean, this escalates so rapidly. And doesn't sin do that? Sin just explodes when it is set free. Genesis also records the beginning of evils such as homosexuality, incest, idolatry, rape, mass murder, harlotry, and other forms of wickedness. It is just rampant throughout the book of Genesis and then throughout the rest of Scripture. All of this stemmed from what? From Adam's sin. Adam's sin. Genesis 3 is that clear example of what happened. This is not a fable. This is not a myth. When Genesis 3 is written by Moses, when he writes this, it is presented as historical fact. And it is treated as history throughout the rest of Scripture. Many, um, so there's, there's kind of five points we're going to cover today. We're going to talk when, when it comes to coming to grips with sin. I wish I could say these were my own kind of thoughts, but I'm not that smart. Um, this, this chapter from thinking biblically, um, or biblically thinking, what's, um, think biblically, all right, um, is, is a chapter uh, called Coming to Grips with Sin, and it was actually written by John MacArthur. Um, this book is written, it's a collection of essays from uh, professors from, uh, I want to say the Master's College, but now it's called the Master's University, um, and, and seminary. Um, and it's just some wonderful things, and we will delve more into this, but I'm glad that we're dealing with this issue of sin at the very onset, uh, at the beginning. We talked about worldview. We've talked about um, what is a biblical mindset. Um, today, we're setting that standard of why do we need all this stuff? It's because sin is in the world. So there's five points that we're going to look at. The solicitor, the strategy, the seduction, the actual sin, 
and the shame. And that's the five things that we see within Genesis 3. The solicitor, the strategy, the seduction, the sin, and the shame. Who is the solicitor? Satan. All right, there we go. I'm going to lay that nice. Why do we know that? Many take the, the point to the talking serpent here as evidence that this whole account in Genesis 3 is a myth. It's just this mythical story like unicorns and, and, and other stuff. Yet Jesus himself presents this as a real account in history when he referred to the devil as a murderer and liar and the father of lying from the beginning in, Gen- in John chapter 4. According to Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We're not to think here that God created reptiles with the ability to talk and reason. All right? Um, that somehow they've lost this now. Uh, the, the cunning this particular serpent displayed is not a characteristic of serpents in general. What's described here is something more than a mere animal. He's being, he is a being who knew God, a personality who spoke with great intelligence and shrewdness. He was a moral being who was opposed to God. He was deceptive. Hostile and bent on destroying the moral innocence of that first couple that lived in the garden, Adam and Eve. We learn by comparing scripture with scripture that this serpent was really Satan masquerading as an animal. Satan, we know, is a master of disguises. Um, He even has the ability to transform himself into what? The angel of light. People always um, claim, well, I'll see the devil coming. No, no, he comes very subtly and deceptively. And he makes his way subtly and deceptively even into the church at times. And he had apparently either taken the physical form of a serpent or somehow possessed the bodies of one of the creatures in the garden. But I wouldn't say that serpents before this had the ability to slither around and talk. Um, he took that possession, uh, possession of or, or some physical form as of a serpent. The name Satan itself is a Hebrew word. See, now you know more Hebrew words, more than just the song Gadol Elohai. You now know Satan is actually the Hebrew word for, or, uh, for the adversary. It usually has that article in front of it. Um, In its Old Testament occurrence, the word is often used with a definite article, suggesting that it was not originally a proper name, but a descriptive expression. So he is not just adversary, he is the adversary. Uh, The technical meaning of the Hebrew term conveys a legal nuance that speaks of one's adversary, the one who brings up an accusation in a legal context. And of course, this is a perfect description of Satan's role. He is what? The accuser of the brethren, right? That is what he said. That's what it says in Revelation 12, verse 10. In the Old Testament book, um, Of Job, we see him working behind the scenes to discredit and ruin Job. And in the New Testament, he seeks power over Peter so that he can sift him like wheat uh, at the hour of Peter's greatest vulnerability, just before Jesus' death. So his behavior that we see throughout Scripture is very consistent with what we see at the very beginning in Genesis 3. 
Where did Satan himself come from? And how are we to understand his character and his work? I mean, who is this solicitor? God did not make Satan evil. God does not create evil. As we saw at the end of, of, of chapter 2, everything God made was what? Good. And even very good. And evil did not exist in creation. In all of creation. In Genesis 1 verse 31, God emphatically declares that everything he had made was very good. Satan then appears unexpectedly and suddenly in Genesis 3.1. That means Satan's fall must have occurred sometime between then. Scripture is silent on when the fall of Satan happened. But it happened somewhere between the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 3. And the events describe... Uh, so right before... or it would. So Satan's role would, have, would appear to have come, or fall would appear to come very soon after Adam and Eve's creation, um, even before they had conceived any offspring. Genesis maintains an earthly perspective on the creation story, um, and yet, and so we see silence about what happened with the fall of Satan, which occurred in heaven. We really don't know. So where Scripture is silent on on the timing of it. We do see, though, that Scripture is not silent on how he fell. Um, turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. If you have to sing your little songs to get to Ezekiel, it's just before Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 28, and in verse 11 through 19 we're going to see the clearest account that we have in Scripture of Satan's rebellion. Ezekiel chapter 28, starting in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were holy on the mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I, I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. 
Uh, we'll keep going, yeah. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. All right. There we have the fall of Satan. Although this is really addressed as a prophetic word against the king of Tyre, the context makes it clear that this passage reaches way beyond the earthly king to the supernatural source of all wickedness, pride, and and, and corrupted authority that we see. This was a prophetic message from God to Satan. And the king of Tyre was simply the example the earthly example. This text clearly identifies the object of those words of condemnation by saying what? You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, the king of Tyre wasn't there. But who was? Satan. The words were addressed to no mere man, but to an angelic being. What does he call him? An anointed guardian cherub. I can tell you the king of Tyre was no guardian cherub. He was the very epitome of created perfection. Verse 12 in Ezekiel 28 calls him the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The Lord says to him, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. This can be none other than the fallen creature who masqueraded as a serpent in the garden. It is that fallen angelic creature we know by the Hebrew word Satan. How sin arose in him is not explained. So where the Bible is silent on some of these things, we have to remain silent. We're not going to say, we don't know uh, how sin arose in him. But where that sin originated is clear. Because it says unrighteousness was found in you. So where it originated was not with God. It was with Satan himself. It was not a defect in the way he was made, because it says you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. The evil did not come from his maker, and yet it did not arise from outside the creature. It was found in him. As a result, the Lord says you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. How this can be explained? This is some of those things that God understands and we do not. How could this creature have been unsatisfied with the perfection that he had been created in? The text offers no explanation except to underscore the truth that the fault arose within the creature himself and in no sense was the result of any imperfection in the way that he was created. So that is the solicitor. That is the one who who created, who, who was in the garden. This is Lucifer. Lucifer also just means shining one, um, a fitting name for the anointed cherub. And the sin from which he condemned, he is condemned is a sin that arose from his own heart. It is a sin of pride, and none of us are guilty of pride around here. <laughs> That's a proud statement in itself. He literally intended to usurp the throne of God. If that's not pride, I don't know what is. 
all of this, all of that support the notion that the creature in view here is Satan. We know that First Timothy three six, for example, that this very attitude of pride was the reason for Satan's downfall and condemnation. At the moment he was lifted up with pride, what did Satan do? He lifted himself up and he fell. And that's what pride does. I mean, when we say pride comes before the fall, we really mean it. It's not just an expression. Luke ten eighteen, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This isn't a stumble. <laughs> this is a fall like lightning from heaven. As quickly as Satan sought to go up, he went down. Though his desire was to be like God, he instantly became as unlike God as possible. The furthest thing from it. And he did not fall alone. Who came with him? Revelations 12. For, uh, Revelation 12, 4 says, A third of the angels in heaven went with him. He brought a myriad of people, of, of angels with him. They evidently became demons, ministers of Satan, and deceivers like him. According to Matthew twenty five forty one, everlasting fire is now prepared for them. Their ultimate doom is as certain as the unchanging faithfulness of God. <sighs> Remember, Satan or salvation for the human race was planned and promised before Satan ever fell. Have you ever realized that? Before the foundation of the world, salvation had been planned. And this is the wonderful kind of glimpse we have into the mind and the heart of God before the foundation of, of the world. Ephesians 1, four, Second Timothy 1.9, Titus 1, 1, uh, Revelation 13.8. We see that before the foundation of the world, God had salvation planned. So when Satan fell and deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, well, he deceived Eve. Adam willfully sinned. When he deceived in, in the garden and in Eden, that was all part of God's eternal plan. It was not a surprise. Not like open theists who say, well, God just kind of is figuring out what things happen as they go along and he's just reacting to them. No, that's not the case. In other words, God allowed Satan to confront Eve. It was no shock to God that, that Satan was in that garden. This encounter in the garden was not unexpected, and it didn't derail God's plan of salvation. God had planned it from the beginning. So what is Satan's strategy? All right. The big part we have to understand is who he was, that solicitor. But now we have to look at the strategy. What is Satan's strategy? Is tempting Eve, and temptation is the strategy he always uses. He's a liar. And the father of lying, but he comes disguised as one who brings truth. He is what? An angel of light. Nobody goes, I'm going to get deceived by Satan today. That looks deceptive. Let's go, look, let's go listen to it. Nobody does that. Everyone's enticed by what they think is light. And that's where discernment comes in. Only in Satan, only in lying is Satan consistent. Everything in him is deceptive. And that's the only thing you can trust him for, to deceive. 
There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. John 8, 44. But, there, but here he begins with what sounds like a very innocent question when he comes before Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. What does he ask her? He's concerned about Eve's well-being, isn't he? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, come on, I'm, I'm worried for you, Eve. I'm concerned for you. Did God actually say... You realize that's the first question ever posed in Scripture? Did God actually say? And has that not changed in everything that's happened since then? That's the first question. Before this, there were only answers. There was no dilemma. But his question was wickedly designed to start Eve on the path of distrust and doubting what God had said to her. This is sort of doubt is the very essence of all sin. When we strip it down to its essence. It's doubting God and his character. Every ounce of sin comes down to that. The gist of all temptation is to cast doubt upon what? God's word. And to subject to what? My own judgment. My own human understanding and judgment. This is what Satan, the serpent, was doing right here. In fact, notice how Satan cunningly twisted and misrepresented the word of God even. God had said what? In Genesis two sixteen and 17, he says, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God's emphasis had been on their what? Their freedom in the garden their perfect freedom that they had, their, this eat from all the trees, except one. Except one, just stay away from that one. Implying that God, but, but what does Satan do? He comes in and turns the question around and the emphasis all of a sudden becomes, oh, you can eat except one? God's fencing you in. He's restricting you. He's turned the question around. And isn't that what he does? Satan's motive was what? He wanted to destroy that first couple. He wanted to destroy them. This is his strategy, is what he does. He had deliberately confronted Eve when she was isolated from Adam and most vulnerable. He aimed his initial attack at her alone. Clearly his aim was to deceive her by his craftiness. Well, she was unprotected from the one who had heard the direct command from God himself. If Eve was surprised to hear a serpent speak, Scripture doesn't say so. After all, Eden was new and was undoubtedly filled with so many wonderful things and so many wonders and and things to discover. Just imagine what that was like. Just constant discovery. It's like when you watch a newborn figuring out like things all of a sudden. That's what Eden was constantly like, just this wonder and excitement. Undoubtedly, she, they were discovering the marvels of creation. So when this serpent arrived speaking, I mean, was it really a shock to her? No, we don't see that she went, oh, what's happening here? No, she was just filled with this ever-increasing wonder. She had no, 
never known fear. She had never encountered danger of any kind. So she was ignorant of what was going on. She was, she conversed with the serpent as if nothing was extraordinary going on. She had no reason to be suspicious. She herself was innocent, having never before encountered the schemes of the devil. So Satan's strategy here became one to what? Portray God as a narrow, strict, uncharitable, and too restrictive. As if God wanted to limit her freedom and to deprave Adam and Eve of enjoyment and pleasure. That's all God wants to do. Satan was implying that evil was... uh, that, that evil and untrustworthiness were part of God's character. He was hinting to Eve that God might be cruel and uncaring and really just kind of selfish in this whole process. Moreover, the the reptile Satan slyly insinuates that he was more devoted to Eve's well-being than God was. He implied that he was for freedom while God was restrictive. Evidently, she did not know that this was God's supernatural foe that she was interacting with. Otherwise, if she knew that, she would probably run away. But she didn't. Scripture says she was what? Deceived. Satan beguiled her by taking advantage of all her innocence. She should have been suspicious of the talking reptile. I think. (laughs) She should have found out more about her tempter before she yielded to his enticements. Above all, she should have made a strong and emphatic disavowal of the suspicion that God had withheld anything from her, anything good from her and her husband. She knew better. That should have sent warning flags to her everywhere. That's not right. Instead, what was her reply? Her reply was only a partial refutation of the the reptile's allegations. She said, "We, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? No, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That's not at all what God said. Notice first she omitted the word every when she said we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. We can, she omitted that word every, suggesting that she was already beginning to lose sight of the vast goodness of God. Then she moved further, recounting the restriction God had imposed on them without defending God's goodness. And worst of all, she added something to the words of the command that God had given. Because what, what did she add? Should not touch it? God never said that. God never said that. Apparently, beginning to feel the restriction was harsh, and she added to the harshness of it. Um, her heart had already set its course. When this happened, she began to not defend God and his goodness. She was not affirming his glorious majesty and his holy perfection. She ignored the fact that God's desire was only for her good. She threw that out the window. She did not take offense at the serpent's insult against God's character. The fall was inevitable from the instant Eve began to doubt. 
once that course was going, you can't get off that train. For all of humanity. What followed was merely the evidence that wickedness had entered the heart already. Everything else stemmed from doubting God's goodness. At this point, Satan knew he won. He had succeeded and pushed for total victory at this point. Immediately he suggested that he knew more than God. His next statement is an assertion that flatly contradicted the word of God and God's motives. You will not surely die for God. Uh, For God knows what you eat or when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That bold denial stated definitively what Satan had merely implied before. Now he was going for the jugular. Now he openly slandered not only the goodness of God, but what did he also slander? The truthfulness of God. He was calling God a liar at this point. So at this point, Eve now had to make a very, very clear choice. She could believe God or she could believe Satan, this serpent right in front of her. Who is telling the truth? Does God want to place undue restriction on you? Does he want to cramp your freedom and minimize your joy? If God is like that, Satan implies, he doesn't love you. He can't be trusted. And that lie is the same today. It has not changed one bit. That lie is still the same. So many people think, I can't come to Christ. That'll limit my freedom if I submit to the lordship of him. Satan was suggesting to Eve that the only reason God could be so restrictive forbidding them to eat of the tree was that there was some flaw in God's character. His love is a defective towards them and Satan had a better idea what was good for them and thus what Satan offered was precisely what he himself tried to obtain what did Satan offer in verse 5 he says you will be what like God what did Satan try to achieve he wanted to be God he wanted to usurp that so he offered that to Eve Satan knew from personal experience that God tolerates no rivals. And so Satan's false promise, you will be like God, is the seed of all false religions. Think of it. Every religion, um, many cults ranging from Buddhism to Mormonism are based on that same lie. You will become a God. It's the twisting of truth. God wants us to be like him in the sense that we share his communicable attributes. He wants us to have holiness and love and mercy, truthfulness and other expressions of his righteousness. But what Satan tried to do and what he tempted Eve to try to do was to intrude into a realm that belongs to God and God alone and usurp his power, his sovereignty and his right to be worshipped. And those things are forbidden to any created creature. They are only to God alone. So what is it? So we have the solicitor, we have the strategy, and the last three here are actually pretty quick. The seduction. James 1, 
13 through 15 says, let one say, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. That process was already on its way for Eve. Sin in the mind goes to work in the emotions. That incites the will, which then brings forth the act. It's, it's every single time. Sin starts in the mind, works its way into the emotions, then incites the will and becomes the act. Every single time. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Self-fulfillment had become Eve's goal, and for the first time ever in all of human history, her own self-interest and self-satisfaction were what drove her. Sin had already been conceived in her heart. Now that sin was beginning to work in her to bring about the evil, this is what she was guilty of already, for she had sinned in her heart. And doesn't Jesus say sin begins in the heart? He who, what, lusts after a woman has already committed adultery? He who who, um, holds anger um, in his heart has already, what, murdered him. There's three features. Uh, Eve saw three features of the forbidden fruit that seduced her. First, she saw that the tree was good for food. It, it appealed. She was seduced by her physical appetite. This is what first gave her her physical appetite. It was good for food. That physical lust that she had, this was not a legitimate hunger. There was plenty of food in the garden for her to eat. This was an illicit appetite that she had. Second, why else did the forbidden fruit seduce her? It was a delight to the eyes. It was an emotional appetite. So she had this physical appetite, but now it was an emotional appetite. The fruit excited her sense of beauty and other passions. Not that there wasn't plenty of other beautiful things in the garden to look at. But Eve focused on what? This one fruit because Satan had planted the idea in her mind that it represented something good that God was keeping from her. And then third, it was, she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. This was her intellectual appetite. So her physical, her emotional, and intellectual appetites were all enticed. Um, Her pride caused her to fancy the wisdom that would come with knowing good and evil. She desired that knowledge and that knowledge from God and was tempted by the false promise that it would make her like God. Thus she was seduced by the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of possession, every evil thing in the world, which John, 1 John chapter 2 speaks of. All temptation comes in one of those three categories. So what is the sin? Ultimately, predictably, the doubt and covetousness in Eve's head gave way to evil behavior. When sin penetrates the mind, the emotions, and the will, it will always be manifest within sinful actions. 
Verse 6 says, she took of the fruit and what? Ate. She just did it. It was a simple act. Wasn't anything fancy. But she ate and what did it do? The impact of that was massive. It emboldened her, perhaps relieved by the fact that she was now no longer, she wasn't instantly struck dead. She went, oh, hey, (laughs) look, it didn't happen. Satan was right. I didn't surely die right now. So what did she do? Hey, honey. She gave, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And what did he do? And he ate. Adam appears from out of nowhere. We don't know where he came from, but he discovers that his wife has already disobeyed the Lord's command. And so what does he do? He partakes as well. There's no record in scripture of how Adam was enticed to do this. We could surmise that Eve related the words of the serpent to him. And so he was enticed with the same recounting of of pleasure um, that was promised. And he was seeing how Eve wasn't struck dead. In any case, Adam doesn't appear to need much convincing. Adam just gives in. It's ironic that the one who God uh, gave to Adam as a helper became the very instrument of disaster and death to Adam. But Adam's guilt, why are we all dead in Adam? Adam's guilt was greater, not less than Eve's. And throughout scripture, Adam is the one who is indicted for the fall, not Eve. Why? Adam's guilt and corruption caused by sin passed him, uh, passed to his, his, his children. Scripture does not expressly say, but it is how, but it is enough for us to know that this happened, that it had passed on to his children. Why? Because Adam willfully sinned. Eve was deceived. But Adam took of it willingly. Adam and Eve could not have known the impact of their sin. Perhaps Satan had some grasp of it, but he reveled in that idea. Certainly God knew, and yet he allowed it, though. God allowed it. Why? Why did God allow sin? Because he had a plan. And that plan was to display his own glory by what? Destroying that evil that had entered. But then Adam and Eve experienced shame. We understand that. We see that, that they had full knowledge of what happened. They were drawn to evil desires. They no longer desired fellowship with God as they had before. And above all, they were, they were conscious now of their own guilt. It's eye-opening only in a negative sense now that they had this knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were open to what they didn't want to know. Their knowledge of evil was too real, but it was nothing like God's. A healthy oncologist knows cancer and with an expertise that surpasses his patient's experiential knowledge. But the person dying of cancer also knows cancer in a very intimate way. But in a way that's destructive. So knowledge of it is different than knowledge of it. 
and feeling the weight of it, that destructive weight of it. Sin instantly destroyed Adam and Eve's innocence. And in that state of self-conscious shame, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. This was not an, this was a noble effort to try and cover their sin, but yeah, it wasn't that great. We see the effects of that covering of shame even today, even in this room. We are all covering our shame of nakedness with our clothing. It's fitting and right that man should want to cover his shame. Naturalists and anthropologists are wrong when they try to portray public nudity as a return to innocence and nobility. That's not true. No, nudity does not cut, recover man's fallen innocence. It only displays a denial of the shame that we ought to feel. It's appropriate that those bearing the guilt of sin should cover themselves. And God himself demonstrated that when? At the very beginning, when what did he do with Adam and Eve? He covered them. But how did he cover them? He killed animals to use their skins as a covering for the fallen couple. In fact, it was this graphic object lesson showing that only God can provide a suitable covering for sin and that it requires what? Blood. The shedding of blood. We find that from Hebrews 9. We see that example. I got to wrap up here. Like Lucifer, Adam and Eve fell so far that now there was nothing good in them. Nothing in life or in the world will ever be the same. God himself cursed the earth so that thorns now grow naturally and fruit trees have to be cultivated. A multitude of woes, including increased pains and childbearing sorrow, toil, distress, disease, and death will now plunge and plague all of creation. An avalanche of sin was loosed in Genesis 3 and could never stop. Until God takes care of it. And he will. And he will. He has. And he will put a final end to it. Um, sin is an ugly thing. Are we not all in agreement there? <laughs> um, thank God that he provided a way to cover our shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. It's so easy to look upon this world and see how sin has wreaked havoc in every facet of this world. We see the evidence on the headlines. We see the evidence of it in our own lives. Nothing should ever surprise us at the depths of what sin did because Lord, we, we see the depths of it within our own heart, and we also see the, the ramifications of how an evil world that is hell-bent on disobeying the God who is holy and righteous and true and to shake its fist at it, what it can produce and what it can do, nothing should surprise us. Lord, we all know that as sinners, we come equal before the foot of the cross, there is no one righteous, no, not one. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have paid the price, that you have covered our shame with your own blood through your own death. 
May we live in the light of that, but may we live especially in the light of your resurrection that gives us new lives so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for Christ. And we thank you for the body of Christ that allows us to worship you this morning. May we deal with our own sin. And may we corporately come together this this morning to worship you as we prepare for that day when we will bow before your throne and hail you as King and Lord of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.